This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. The video game industry produces an enormous volume of highly innovative user interface experiences. But this rich source of creative thinking is largely unseen by communities dedicated to conventional software or web design. Vanguard's John Ferreira argues that as gaming becomes a ubiquitous activity among a vast worldwide customer base, its direction and conventions will become not merely relevant to HCI design, but indeed impossible to ignore for web designers and those in the software industry. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. I want to thank you all so much for attending. My name is John Ferrara. I'm an information architect with Vanguard in the Philadelphia region. Now, Vanguard is one of the world's largest investment management companies. We sell mutual funds with domestic assets totaling about $1.3 trillion. On the web team, we work on interfaces for general investment management, participants in defined benefit and defined contribution plans, institutional asset management, and financial advisor services. So today, I'm going to be talking to you about video games. Funny, actually, this discussion was opened at the summit two years ago by a colleague of mine, Andrew Hinton. And today, I hope to be able to expand upon that strong foundation. But this opens the obvious question, why should we care? Why should any of us care? And I'll quickly propose three reasons. First, innovation. Games are going through something of a golden age in interface design. Competition for market share is fierce, both among games and the systems on which they're played. And one of the ways that game makers are seeking to differentiate themselves is through interface design. Now, some of these innovations are good, others are bad. Many are stunning, as I think you'll see over the course of this presentation. Yet, as a community, we're not often exposed to the creative thinking happening in this field. I think games should be an area of active inquiry for us. Second, there's substantial overlap between these disciplines. Certainly, both are human-computer interaction design. At a previous employer, I designed several games to be sent to clients as holiday greetings. This is a wireframe from a golf game. The methods and design considerations were entirely the same as they are for web. Visual affordances, fits law, learnability, information sent. The fundamentals don't change. But video games and conventional UIs are also increasingly concerned with the same thing. In many ways, games are becoming more web-like. They've been moving online since the late 1990s, and web browser functions are starting to appear natively on console and handheld systems. At the same time, the web is becoming more game-like, with rich internet applications, Flash, Flex, and so on, enabling new forms of interactivity. Additionally, there are often clear analogs between video games and the problems addressed by application software. The Sims is about real-time resource management. It has many similarities to logistics and dispatch applications. A good solution is a good solution. 
to whatever extent game interfaces can achieve a superior user experience, we can benefit from exposure to their innovations. Third, games are vastly popular. Video games are played by 63% of the US population. Sales in 2007 topped $18.8 billion in the US alone. That's up 40% over 2006, which was itself a record year. That's double the total North American Hollywood box office sales for 2007. This past December, World of Warcraft passed 10 million subscribers and continues to grow. More women are playing games, as are older audiences, especially with products like the Nintendo Wii that are designed to be accessible to a broader market. Given their ubiquity, it is reasonable to assume that the interface conventions found in games will form the basis of a globally recognized nonverbal lingua franca. So why shouldn't we be paying attention to them? Today I'll start by defining the game experience, first for games in general, then video games in particular. Then we'll look at games in vital contexts, review game patterns, and survey new innovations in game UI. While games vary widely in form, the same basic characteristics are common to all of them. They're repeated again and again and define the core experience. Summarizing the writings of several theorists, I've put together a concise schema to describe them. First, static objectives. Some explicit, measurable condition that all of the players are trying to attain. It's important that the objective remains static once it's set. You can't move the goalposts during play. Second, environmental constraints. The physical spaces and materials that enable play. This can include a deck of cards, a pair of dice, a checkerboard, or an actual location in the case of games like Tag. Third, formal constraints. These are the rules, a set of boundaries around behaviors that are binding for all participants. There's nothing that keeps people following these constraints apart from their mutual agreement to do so. To demonstrate the applicability of this definition, we'll start with a very simple example, tic-tac-toe. The static objective is to align three marks in a straight line. Environmental constraints, a square containing nine spaces and two kinds of marks. Formal constraints, each player owns one kind of mark. Players alternate turns. One mark is placed in an available space each turn, and once placed, a mark cannot be moved. The important point here is that this is everything you need to describe tic-tac-toe. You can change the X's and O's into Hatfields and McCoys, change the nine box grid into a battlefield, it doesn't matter. The core gameplay experience remains unchanged. Motifs are to games as style sheets are to HTML. Video games add only one distinguishing characteristic to this basic definition, completion of objectives and compliance with the rules are arbitrated through the interface. This removes the burden from human beings to distinguish winners from losers, fair play from fouls. This can make gaming very efficient while allowing the rules to be more complex. And this offers some hints as to why video games are so compelling, why people are willing to spend 20, 30, 40 hours a week or more playing World of Warcraft. Since the game arbitrates events in response to human behaviors, it becomes a method of operant conditioning in the same sense as a Skinner box. Now, you'll recall that the rat's objective was to get a food pellet. 
The rules were that when the green light comes on, press the lever and the reward will be issued. Press the lever while the red light is on and the poor rat gets a zap. Gains too are complex formal systems of rewards and punishments, carrots and sticks. To do that, games need to be able to offer currencies in exchange for play. Typical currencies include points on a leaderboard, advancement in character abilities, progression in the storyline, game items like a magic sword or invisibility cloak, and access to locked content. Now, it's worth noting that these currencies are exceedingly cheap to produce, yet they're sufficient to motivate real human behavior. This is Brain Age for the Nintendo DS handheld, a collection of games that have the player doing things like arithmetic, calculating change, and reading the time off a clock that's upside down and backwards. And it asks you to do a whole set of these things every single day. Sound like fun to you? Well, the two titles in the Brain Age series have sold over 17 million copies worldwide, and both are current top 10 bestsellers. So how can activities that are so mundane be made so compelling? The answer is that Brain Age offers various currencies in exchange for play. First of all, you receive emotional support from the disembodied head of a Japanese neurologist. Now, every day, Dr. Kawashima provides you with a metric of your cognitive performance, the titular Brain Age. When you do well, Dr. Kawashima offers his congratulations. And when you perform very poorly indeed, he offers encouragement and even flatters you, saying things like, just keep up your daily training until your big brain is young again. He's really very supportive. Your daily performance is also tracked over time and plotted against the performance of friends who are playing the game. These charts create a competitive reward for practice and improvement. A leaderboard is kept for each game, and the player is celebrated for setting new records. Finally, for each day that you complete your training, you receive a stamp on a calendar. When you've accumulated enough stamps, the game unlocks new content, new games, and other rewards. Now, while it's not at all clear whether the exercises have any impact upon cognitive function, it is abundantly clear that Brain Age is vastly successful at making mundane daily tasks feel compelling. And that's really something that's worth our attention. What else makes games compelling? Well, there's also a pure joy in the interaction with the game itself. In web design, we're accustomed to the admonition that the interface only ever gets in the way. The people want to accomplish their objectives by the most efficient means possible and get out. But with video games, people elect to engage the interface because they enjoy it. And of course, games have rich audio and visual sophistication. Game companies attract the brightest graphic design talent, and the artwork is often extraordinary. Game systems have grown increasingly powerful to support more visually impressive experiences. As we'll say, it's worth asking whether any of these qualities can work in the service of conventional UIs as well. And this brings us to the second part of the presentation, looking at games in vital contexts. There's a cultural bias that games must always be symbolic in nature. They carry no real import beyond their own scope, and so are inherently frivolous activities. When we say that something is just a game, we mean that we cannot consider it to be all that important. And when we warn that something is not a game, we mean that its importance must not be so debased. 
This bias is reflected in Katie Salon and Eric Zimmerman's book on game design, The Rules of Play, where they propose the concept of the magic circle. That while game spaces fall within the domain of real life, they're also separated from it by clear boundary. The game space creates its own reality, and people give mutual consent to accepting that reality when they enter the magic circle, leaving the norms of real life behind. Salon and Zimmerman go on to couple this with artificiality. They write, the idea that the conflict in games is an artificial conflict is part of our very definition of games. Salon and Zimmerman are in turn reflecting the writings of earlier theorists, such as anthropologist Johann Heisinger, who wrote that play is an activity connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained by it. It proceeds within its own proper boundaries of time and space. In Man, Play, and Games, sociologist Roger Caillois agreed that play is make-believe, accompanied by a special awareness of a second reality or of a free unreality as against real life. Now, I agree that games create their own reality, but it is with the point of necessary artificiality that I take issue, because it is, in fact, demonstrably false. The artificiality of games is much more a matter of convention than of necessity. Ken Jennings won $2.5 million playing a game called Jeopardy. This game is not symbolic. His earnings are very real. Gambling revenues can constitute a real loss of income for activities that precisely fit our definition of games. The phrase, it's just a game, seems overly trite when people with gambling addictions face ruination. Games form the foundation of industry. The sports industry is built entirely on games. Revisiting the magic circle, I would suggest that it's better to think of it this way, where the edges of the game space are permeable. Yes, it's still a distinct subset of broader experience, but elements of real life can enter into the game space, where they can be processed and then returned as output back into real life. This all leads us to a critical insight, that games do not need to be, and often are not, purely artificial or symbolic activities. The cultural disposition that they're inherently frivolous only holds us back from exploiting a deep mode of interactivity. I call this a critical insight because it leads directly to the inevitable conclusion that games can solve real problems. Let me give you some examples. Last year's summit organizers, and again this year's summit organizers, are trying to solve a real problem, to encourage social networking. Without a mutually acceptable pretext, approaching another person can be awkward or intimidating. This trading card game both solves a real-world problem and is wholly a game experience. Looking back at our definition of games, the static objective is to collect all of the different cards. Environmental constraints. There are 16 different cards at a conference with 600-ish attendees. And each player starts with 16 cards of the same type. Formal constraints. Trade with other attendees for the cards you don't have. The game even has built-in currencies. The cards themselves have instructive value. And when you've gained a complete set, you're eligible to enter a drawing to win various prizes. Last year, this game worked concisely in service of its designer's real-world objectives. And this year, well, by the way, I have 16, a full stack of 16 sketchboarding cards. Does anybody here need those? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, all right. I've been waiting for this kind of popularity since high school. 
Google Image Labeler is a perfect example of a video game interface that has been applied to solve a real-world problem. Specifically, a vast number of images on the internet need tags to be indexed usefully, but tagging is laborious, and people have little reason to do it. So let's take a look at how this application tries to resolve that problem. Now, in a moment, we'll be connected with a, um, with a partner randomly selected from out on the internet. Then we'll be shown a picture, as we have one here, and asked to assign certain tags to it. You'll notice that some tags are going to be off limits. I'm going to ask everybody in the room to call out tags that you, that you think fit this picture. And our objective is to select the same tags that our partner guesses. So, give me some tags. How would you describe this picture? Man. Moody. Matched on man. Yay! We got, we got 50 points. Okay. By the way, if you match on a more complex tag, then you get more points. So, any tags for this one? Rice. Oatmeal. Bowl. Uh, our partner wants to pass, unfortunately. The partner can't come up with any tag for this one, apparently. And, okay, suggestions. Legs. What's that? Sand? Spider. Spider's off limits, actually. You can't use that one. Soldier? Matched on sand, 120 points. Ah, any suggestions? Overachiever. <laughs> Anything else? Underachiever. Anything else? Paparazzi. A-R-A-R-A-Z-Z-I? Hmm. Okay. I, I, I bet our partner couldn't spell that. Hot, sexy, train wreck, matched on hot, 140 points. <laughs> okay, so anyway. Now the benefit to Google um, is that if two tags are suggested independently by different people, um, then they're going to be more reliable. And ultimately these, uh, these points are aggregated and they go onto a leaderboard. Yahoo Answers is another example of a real-world problem solved through gameplay. The problem is that existing web content often doesn't contain concise answers to idiosyncratic questions. But here, the user posts a question, and other people then compete to provide the best answer. The asker then picks the best one, and that's, that person is awarded a certain number of points. These points then aggregate on a leaderboard, creating a prestige motive for people to provide the most high-quality answers. There's a growing interest in the professional world for games that solve real-world objectives. NASA has issued an RFI for the development of an online game to serve as a training platform for space science students. The request suggests that players will be able to simulate experiments using realistic physics and chemistry, and reads, Massively multiplayer online games help players develop and exercise a skill set closely matching the thinking, planning, learning, and technical skills increasingly in demand by employers. I think the tagline for the game should be, if you love Warcraft but wish it were nerdier. I will, of course, play it. <laughs> TopCoder is a company that runs software development as a competition. The best code for a set of requirements is awarded a cash prize. 
This is a very different game-based model for group work management. In a similar fashion, the game experience can be extended to other real-world interfaces where the human task can be, can be defined using our criteria for games, such as personal finance and education. Now, understand, I'm not saying that these tasks are merely game-like or that they share some elements with games, but rather that they are indistinguishable from games. We're just not used to thinking of them that way. And they can benefit from the very same things that make games so compelling. Starting with personal finance software, products like Quicken and Microsoft Money. Here again, people have static objectives, so I want to put $3,000 into an IRA. Environmental constraints, I have a set monthly income and certain bills I need to pay. And formal constraints, I need to reduce my discretionary spending. This is a game. So how can we make use of the things that make games more compelling? Well, we can, in fact, posit plausible interfaces, but it requires changing our expectations of what conventional software can and should do. First, we should allow the interface to arbitrate success, which is the characteristic that defines a video game. The user can set the initial objective, the contribution to the IRA. The software can ensure that remains static over time and serve as the final arbiter of success. Second, give the interface access to currency, such as transaction control for online accounts. The user might also specify a wish list of items he or she would like to buy, but only when other financial obligations have been satisfied. Third, issue rewards when objectives are met. If the IRA account balance has gone up by $3,000 before the deadline, the software automatically moves $100 from the user's savings into checking, with a note to enjoy a dinner out. For a greater accomplishment, perhaps a wish list item, like an iPod, is automatically purchased from Amazon, sent with a card marking the milestone. One field that's already leading the way in the, the, way in the application of game design is education, because it fits the definition of games so very well. Static objectives are set by a teacher, so learn the structure of the solar system. The student works in an environment of textbooks, articles, and lectures. And there are rules, like you can't copy another person's work. So let's say that a computer issues a series of tests on the solar system. For a given number of correct answers, a monster appears on screen for a short period of time. If the student clicks the monster before it escapes, that monster is now caught and available in the student's personal virtual zoo. Capturing more exotic monsters attracts more visitors and generates higher revenues for the zoo. But the exotic monsters appear less frequently. Some are associated with specific subjects or more difficult questions. The interface might also allow students to trade monsters, playing up their personal strengths and interests. Implemented as a school-wide system, this could make an honor roll entirely redundant. But I don't want to make the case that everything can be understood as a game. For activities that fall outside of those defined parameters, there's still tremendous benefit to be gained from their study. The vast popularity of games means that a growing population has a built-in familiarity with their conventions, characteristics, and metaphors, which are referred to here collectively as patterns. In this section of the presentation, I'll review several of these and discuss their applicability beyond games. One of the most pronounced differences between video games and conventional UIs is the real physical presence of the user in the game. It's common that the player has some robust physical representation of the game, some tangible sense of you 
whether that's Mario in a two-dimensional side-scroller, or the perspective from Master Chief's armored helmet in a first-person shooter. Contrast that with conventional UIs where this is used. The web is like a surface that we touch, grab, poke, and drag. But many video games are environments where we are physically present. This is a widespread convention that has importance to players. And in fact, it has been applied beyond games. The quintessential example of which is, of course, Second Life. Now, Second Life is not a game because there is no defined objective you're working toward, no measurable success condition. At its heart, Second Life is a sophistication upon chat rooms, a social gathering place. But it uses this convention of physical presence in games to transform the experience into something much richer. Another example, the Nintendo Wii's shell interface has users build likenesses of themselves called Miis. These characters are a part of the interface itself. You can pick them up and drop them to access a function or cast a vote. This is a part of the unique charm of the Wii's UI and adds significantly to the user's sense of engagement in the experience. One of the most important patterns in games is temporal motion. Most software applications do not share the same experience of time as human beings. Microsoft Word has no sense of whether the time between keystrokes was a millisecond or a day. But in a video game, the passage of time mirrors the temporal motion of the real world. This is important to the game experience. As events occur, players need to react to them. Game designers routinely work in a dimension that we kind of forget about. In Prince of Persia, the player moves as fluidly through time as she does left and right. If you fall off a cliff, you can rewind to the point before you fell to prevent it from happening. You can generally slow down the flow of time or make it pass more slowly for your enemies. In conventional UIs, we have history stacks and undo lists, but these are simply ordinal with no sensitivity to time. You can go back five steps within a given application, but you can't go back five minutes to review what you were doing. With disk space now very cheap, there's no reason why websites couldn't store complete browsing chronologies for every user, so that on return visits, you could access a complete timeline of all of the news articles you've read or products you've viewed, organized by the date you looked at them to assist refinding. Third, many video games afford very different experiences for different user proclivities. This is very common in role-playing games, which allow players to build characters around preferred attributes. For example, in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, you earn experience points as you progress through the game, which you can then apply to attributes like strength, defense, intelligence, dexterity, and so on. Your character may then develop as a fighter, healer, spellcaster, wookie, whatever you like. The experience scales to the way you prefer to play. Additionally, the actions that you take either lead you toward the bright side or the dark side, which in turn lead to markedly different narratives. On a website, we could imagine building different user experiences for different user attributes. For example, users who submit more sophisticated queries to a search engine using Boolean operators and longer strings may earn technical acumen points. And in reaction, the interface may adapt itself to, to provide a more advanced tool set for narrowing the results that are returned. We could even build complete character profiles. Uncertainty is a vital component in games. Elements of risk, luck, and randomness make games interesting by putting the outcome in doubt. Uncertainty can come from a shuffled deck, 
a die roll, or the unknown strategies of opponents in online games. At first blush, it's difficult to conceive of how uncertainty could provide value in a conventional UI, but in fact, it's integral to any experience that involves churn. If we always knew what tomorrow's news headlines were going to be, we wouldn't bother subscribing to the feeds. RSS is premised on the uncertainty of whether or not you're going to miss something. Uncertainty can be built into a user experience. Woot is an unusual e-commerce site in that it only sells one item each day. It goes up around midnight central time and sells until they run out. You don't know what it's going to be until it posts, and if it's a really good deal, there's the risk you'll miss out on it. Uncertainty also creates thrill. TurboTax understands this and plays it up by keeping a running tally of your refund in constant view. Now, TurboTax certainly isn't a game, but it has this same wonderful element of revelation that you find in games. Micro macro readings are another common convention. These often take the shape of mini-maps for environments where context and detail are both important. Here's a screen from Age of Empires III where the player must command a squadron of soldiers over a large battlefield. While the main display lets you interact with the soldiers, you can also interact with the mini-map that shows the broader area, objectives, and locations of troops off-screen. Google Maps similarly combines detail with context, as does Snagit. But on most websites, we see less rich devices, like breadcrumb trails, which only indicate the ancestors of the current page, a comparatively narrow explanation of the, of the parent context. Health bars take many forms in games, but they all work the same way. They provide a simple, constant measure of scarcity in a resource. An application like Microsoft Outlook could easily calculate the amount of time you have outside of scheduled meetings, then display it constantly as a bar, showing the work time you have remaining today. Yeah, yeah who needs that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> many games begin with tutorial levels, where the player is exposed to a broad set of the gameplay elements in an environment with lower stakes. Metal Gear Solid opens with a collection of training levels played in what the game calls virtual reality. The idea is that you should be able to jump into the game as soon as you get it, without needing to read the manual. In the early 90s, Microsoft Office came packaged with fairly comprehensive tutorials that walked you through the functions of each of the applications. These have long since disappeared, perhaps in an effort to increase the value of training for ever more complex software. Over the past 15 years, game interfaces have moved toward greater learnability, while conventional software has gone in the opposite direction. Finally, video games are blazing the trail when it comes to online collaborative workspaces. For example, World of Warcraft allows you to spontaneously form groups of up to five other people to go on collaborative dungeon crawls. These groups can in turn be chained into supergroups that can mount raids on entire cities. All of this requires command structure and strategies that the players must bring to the game. Online games have become increasingly common on consoles as well, played using Bluetooth headsets in place of keyboards. This makes for a much different collaboration dynamic, where players can coordinate their actions in real time without pausing to type. Online components have become so common that a game is seen as being behind the times if it doesn't include them. The player community thus constitutes a massive worldwide laboratory 
for researching collaborative user interfaces. I'd like to close today by surveying some of the new innovations arising from video game interface design. Here, I'm less concerned with speculating about the applicability to our work and more with the pure inventiveness of these UIs. The most visible example is, of course, the Nintendo Wii's controller. Since the mid-1980s, game system controllers have evolved through incremental changes to their predecessors, adding a button here or a thumbstick there. The Wii has made a clean break from that lineage. The Wii Mote detects motion in three dimensions and functions as a pointing device on screen. You can literally swing the controller like a bat to play baseball. And when you connect with the ball, the controller shakes and a crack emanates from the built-in speaker. With the Wiimote, game designers can craft entirely new ways of interacting. This is WarioWare Smooth Moves, a collection of games that have the player um, uh, doing things like turning a crank in order to open a gate so that an airplane can fly through. Here you flip sautéing vegetables. For this one, you just let go so the controller falls like a bungee jumper from your wrist as a little scream comes out of the built-in speaker. Cute. Weird, but cute. I still don't understand why you're Elvis on top of the Tower of Pisa. I don't know. Um, there are over 200 microgames in the collection, though, each one exploring a new metaphor for user input. I think there's much to be learned here. Nintendo also makes the DS handheld, which is another little marvel of interface design. It has two LCD screens, a set of six control buttons, and a directional pad, a touch screen with stylus, built-in microphone, and of course, 802.11b wireless internet connectivity. This is one of the Brain Age games that incorporates voice recognition. The player shouts out the color of the text on screen. The math games use handwriting recognition, input using the stylus. This is Lost Magic, which uses shorthand gestures, input with the stylus to cast magic spells. The DS's various inputs comprise a rich tool set that's open to the creativity and ambition of game designers. And they're taking fullest advantage of it. Sony's iToy is nothing more than a webcam that projects the player's image up on screen. The player interacts by moving around and touching overlaid objects. What's really remarkable here is how the interface just dissolves in simple and captivating games. I'd like to ask whether anybody would care to try this out. Show of hands. Anybody? Someone up here, somebody who maybe doesn't normally play video games, definitely somebody who hasn't played the iToy before. Anybody? How about right here? Come on up. Bring it out a bit more. Just a moment of setup, everybody. Okay, I'm gonna have you come back here a little bit. What's your name? Eba? Very good to meet you, I'm John. Okay, you're gonna stand here at the line. Okay, very good. Just stand there, I'm gonna adjust this camera a little bit so that it's adjusted to your height. Okay. Now, Eba, I'd like you to play the game. Go ahead. A little bit dependent upon lighting. Go ahead. Keep going, keep going, keep going.
Hold on, one window down. Very good. As many as you possibly can, so as fast as you can go is better. Yes, good news, only 40 more seconds of this. Henry, why don't you jump in and help her out? Now you'll notice how no instructions were required for how to play. She was able to derive the objective and the rules through the interaction itself. So today, we've defined the game experience, looked at games in vital contexts, reviewed game patterns, and surveyed new innovations in game UIs. Much of what I've discussed is a significant departure from our status quo, but change is unavoidable and indeed underway. In the boundless imagination of games, we can begin to see the shape of future interfaces. We should not be apprehensive about exploring them. Rather, we should do what we always do. We should go where our users are. Thank you again for attending. I invite you to continue the discussion online. My blog is worldwideintertubes.com, and uh, I've set up a Yahoo group specifically for this subject. If you're interested, everybody is invited to join. Any questions? Maybe one. Let's all thank John. Thank you for your time. <laughs>